Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. Matthew 20, and so we'll probably have to get into that right away. Matthew 19, we we got through most of that. I was working in the side panel a little bit to get us an idea of what Matthew 19 was really talking about. And it was talking about family. And tyrants know that they have to undermine the family because once you undermine the family, you've undermined the community. And they they weaken the people, then they turn the people into slaves. And it tells us about this over and over again in the Bible and Proverbs and Psalms and and uh, all the prophets talk about what can become the tables that can become a snare and a trap. And of course, that's what Nimrod was doing. He was a mighty provider instead of the Lord. That's what the goddess of Sumer, the turtle dove goddess of Sumer was doing. It was setting up a welfare system to take care of the needy of society but not through faith, hope, and charity, but through force. This is the whole story of the Bible. From the beginning, the Corbin of the Pharisees, all this is talking about this. But you wouldn't know it walking into your modern churches. And if you read the Bible without a knowledge of history and what was going on, without the common sense that comes out, well, how did people take care of one another? How did Americans do it in the early part of America? They did it through faith, hope, and charity and free associations and free assemblies of people. That, and, and I can give you stories. I've read countless letters and, and, uh, correspondence between people and, you know, they would have an old widow living near them and they would check on her every day. We did that out here on a regular basis. But in the cities, you can die in your apartment and nobody will come and find you because you don't actually love your neighbor as yourself. I find a few people like that, but they're scattered flock and they're not organized. The early church had to be organized. And they would not have survived if they hadn't have been organized. But of course, the most critical thing is that they need to be following the Holy Spirit. They need to be eating of the tree of life. And that's a process to learn that. You can't, that's not just like go to college and learn that. It's it's about submitting to the Holy Spirit. And of course, Christ gave us some specific instructions that we were to submit to. You know, love one another. Of course, the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't murder, don't covet. Don't make covenants with other gods, other men who want to make choices for you. Let God make the choice. He is the benevolent God. He is the giver of life. If you want to enter into life, if you want to enter into eternal life, listen to God, because you're not going to get eternal life from the CDC or the AMA or or the Republicans or the Democrats. You're going to get a government of tyranny that will shut down your businesses and inject you with experimental toxins. That's what you'll get. You'll You'll get half your labor taken away You'll, you'll be back in the bondage of Egypt and they will kill care in you. So you don't care about anybody but yourself. So if you want to do something different, which is seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. So in Matthew 20, just getting started right off. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. God is the ultimate householder. He is the one who built the house. He is the one who gives us the house. And he is looking for those who will labor for his purposes, which is to set the captive free, to let us all become free souls under God, to give us the infinite amount of choice so that we can choose love rather than greed and covetousness and licentiousness. So this ultimate householder goes out and when he had agreed with laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And then it says in the third hour, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard and whosoever is right I will give you whatsoever is right I will give you and they went their way. Now he didn't agree to a penny. He says whatever is right I will give you. And in the sixth hour again he went out uh, and it says about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And in the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all day idle? So it's very clear. God doesn't think it's good to be idle. Slothful. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. And they say unto him, Because no man has hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard. And whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. And so... When even was come, and the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire. Begin from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. The guys that came in the eleventh hour got a penny. But when the first came... They suppose that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden. And the heat of the day. But he answered unto them and said, Friend, I do thee thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto the last even as I unto thee. And so... What's the message of this? Uh, Well, for one thing, God's a capitalist. (laughs) He makes an agreement. He sticks by that agreement. But he will not be bound by your sense of justice. You don't have any right. God will give to who he wishes according to what he wishes to do. 
That principle applies to everybody else. When you gather in congregations, are you coming up with some new doctrine that everybody else has to fall in line with? Paul talks about that. That uh, your new doctrine, are you going to impose this new doctrine? Oh, you got to do it this way. Of course, the Trinity is a prime example of that because that was brought in hundreds of years after Christ. Now, there there was the Holy Spirit and there was the Son and there was the Father. But the idea of congelling this into a complicated doctrinal trinity that we all have to believe in? No. That was created by men. But, I will tell you this, you do have to believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Because they're all one. They all preach the same way. They all express the same way. They all write the same way on your heart and your mind. If you're not going the way that Christ said to go, then I would have to believe that the Holy Spirit is not writing upon your heart and your mind. If you think it's okay to covet when Jesus said it was not, then I I don't think you're listening to Jesus and I don't think you're following the Holy Spirit. And I only tell you that so that you might be saved and you might repent and turn around and go the other way. If we're following the way of Christ, we'll be doing things according to what Christ said and we will not be doing things according to the way that Christ did not say or said not to go. We will be conforming to the Holy Spirit. We will be coming in in accord with the Holy Spirit. There are those who have not read the Bible, do not know all this stuff, and they are closer to the kingdom than many of the people who have read it and read it and read it from cover to cover. Because they're already doing what the Holy Spirit has told them in their hearts and in their minds. I've seen this time and time again. Real servant type people that are closer because the Holy Spirit will move on those people and they will act according to the leading of that Holy Spirit. They don't even know that that's what they're doing. But something in them, it's kind of like, you know, the story of Huck Finn. I can give you a lot of other examples, but everybody's probably read Huck Finn. That he's, he's, being tempted to help Jim, who's a runaway slave, and everything he'd been taught, a runaway slave, uh, has to be turned in, and only an abolitionist would not turn him in, and an abolitionist is a horrible person. That's what he's been told. That's what he's been taught, time and time again. But he says, I don't care if I'm even going to hell, I'm going to help Jim. <laughs> Which is actually the right thing to do, is to help Jim. But he wasn't taught that that was the right thing to do. Not by men. Not by flesh and blood. But deep down in this fictional character of Mark Twain. Huck, Huck Finn thought, I gotta help, I gotta help him. I gotta be there for him. And of course Jim had to be there for Huck Finn later on. Something told him, uh, this ain't right. They had all kinds of crazy ideas superstitions and all this stuff. Well, when it really came down to something important, they risked themselves for others. That is the Spirit of Christ. Now, that's not always the Spirit of Christ. You can always have 
other strange loyalties that caused people to jump on a grenade for to save Nazis. <laughs> so, you know, that it, it that's why God is judged, not us. This is why we should not be dictating all kinds of things to people to do or not do that isn't specifically said by Christ. I mean, we can have the conversation. But if you start doing that, you'll end up with 40,000 denominations. And that's what has happened. You know, I often, I find myself saying, if you go this way, you'll all end up back in the bondage of Egypt. Of course, I have the advantage of having seen everybody move into the bondage of Egypt from 1933 to to the present day. (laughs) So, I can, I can predict what will happen if you start coveting your neighbor's goods. You will go into the bondage of Egypt. And I can predict that because I can see it. Because I know the immediate history, but I also know the history all the way back to Pompeii and Polybius and all the people in ancient times who, who knew the same thing. You don't know the same thing. The average person on the street doesn't know the same thing. Because he went to public school, which is teaching you to be a good worker bee. It's not teaching you to be a sovereign individual under the authority of God. It's teaching you how to go back into bondage. And your church has taught you the same thing. Now, I have to be fair. Many of the ministers were taught the lie. They may have even questioned it at the time. But they didn't get the answer. Or they gave in to, you know, the pressure of society. They still have time to repent. But they have to admit they're wrong. And that's one of the hard things for people to do. They just don't want to admit that they're wrong. Or that they've been wrong. People say, well, do you admit that you're wrong? (laughs) How do you think I got these crazy ideas? I was raised in the Catholic Church, studied to be a priest. I thought that what they were telling me was true, and I tried to make sense out of it. But it's only through the grace of God that I finally said, oh my gosh. And a few people that God put in my way that said things that I wasn't expecting them to hear that caused me to ponder these questions. Now... It's your turn. And what do you, you have to turn this new, these new ideas or new to you ideas into actions. So, Jesus points out another point of being a capitalist in verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? And he was good because he gave a penny to other guys who came. You know, they did come all the way out to the field to work. And they did work. And he chose to give each one a penny. Because they, maybe because he was going to need them the next day and he wanted. We used to hire people for $50 a day. We'd pay them $50 a day if they kept day laborers. And, uh, all of a sudden, I, I I was work. We were working. It was over several miles. Our crew was spread out, and I was going up and down the line. And all of a sudden, I came where the crew had been, and or some of the crew had been, and they were gone. 
and their shovels were in the hole, and they just disappeared. And I thought, like, what what happened to them? Where'd they go? <laughs> now, I didn't have the contract for this job. My brother did. We used to be partners, but we weren't partners anymore at this time. But I still worked for him. I made more than $50 a day. But when I, I said, well, the guys are gone. They just disappeared. I don't know where they went. And uh, and he says, well, they probably quit. And I says, why they quit? He says, because I told them that I wasn't going to pay them $50 a day. I says, well, you can't do that. You agreed to, you told them the day before they'd get $50 today if they came to work. They came all the way to work. And now you say you're going to pay them less. You can say you're going to pay pay them less tomorrow, but you got to pay them fifty dollars a day because that's what you said. And I got kind of a blank look, and he did, and I says, "Well, that's why they left. I might have left." <laughs> well, it was true that they, you know, the previous day had been Monday, and they some of them did not work as hard, and so we didn't get nearly as much done. I know there were some guys just sloughing off. I I could tell you the whole details. But you have to make your yeses yes. Now, if you say yes to God, you need to count the cost and realize that this this is a journey that might get a little hard in the days ahead. And we talked this morning about the guy who kept the commandments. We have to keep the commandments. You don't have to say yes to the commandments, but if you say no to the commandments... The wrath of God will kick in, which is the consequences of not keeping the commandments. You know, if, if you covet your neighbor's goods, you'll become merchandise. Done deal. You know, if if you try to live by the sword, somebody's going to end up killing you, even if you're falling on your own sword like Saul did. As you judge, so shall you be judged. And those ten statements are telling you, don't do this. Wrong ways to go. You go this way. The bridge is out. You're going to end up in trouble. That's what they're telling you. In the statutes of Moses, that's 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 not laws either. That is, you know, the precedents for the courts to look at. You know, if somebody does this, if somebody does that, then you take a look at it. But you have to look at every case differently. Because maybe somebody took all kinds of precautions, but they didn't take enough precautions. Maybe they did put a barrier around a hole that they dug, but somebody came and took down the barrier. And maybe somebody went up where there was no balcony rail and fell off. But you had locked the door so nobody would go up there. And he broke in and went up there anyway. Well, those are different situations. You didn't create a hazard, you barred, but the guy disregarded it. So, Jesus is saying it's lawful for him to do with his own what he wills, but your labor is not yours because you signed up for Social Security. And when you did that, it says right in the statute that you're waving, you know, in the actual... Social Security Act, that you're waiving a right to a portion of your labor. And now you're becoming an employee. And it, it says it's for, you know, 
the Social Security tax and for other taxes. So this is how you win. Because there is no way that the government can just suddenly take away a portion of your labor unless you've signed something, agreed to something, taken a benefit through some sort of way in which you have joined this system. And that, that of course, is what we see right in Exodus uh, and certainly in Genesis. They, they needed free bread. They needed the provisions of the Pharaoh. And he said, okay, I'll give it to you. Because you don't have any money to pay for I'll give it to you, but you'll owe a percentage of your labor from now on. That was the deal. He'll give you these benefits, but you'll owe a percentage of your labor. And according to the contract, he can change the percentage. And of course, immediately, I mean, you're already in debt, but he ran up the debt even more. And so, yeah, you can leave now, but you got to pay the debt that they ran up taking care of your parents. And your grandparents. They they borrowed money to take care of them. You didn't take care of them. And so, now, what do you do? You know, I mean, they've been providing with free education, free this, free that, all this stuff. Underwriting every police force in the United States. Now they're withdrawing that money. But you're in debt so much. I mean, what did we talk about this morning? $451 billion a year they're spending that they do not have. Of course, they're spending it on foreigners. Which is making them more a slave. They don't know that yet. But they will become slaves of the New World Order quicker than you can think. But the reason you're in this mess is you haven't been listening to the ways of God. And the only way out is to start to listen to the ways of God and start walking in the ways of God. Somebody asked me about a militia. You know, because they, they have relatives who want to start a militia or join a militia that we have to do something. They can see bad things coming. Absolutely right, bad things are coming. But you need to create the social bonds of a free society. Without that, your militia will turn on you. It will abandon you. It will not bless you. It will get you out. It will get you arrested for walking <laughs> in the Capitol building. Because they they will use it against you. That millions will die because they try to form a militia without the key ingredient needed in a society to obtain justice and mercy. And that's the social welfare system of Christ, the social welfare system of Moses, which gives you the discretion of how to fund it. And who to fund and who to help and who not to help. And it also teaches you to care about one another. Because that's ultimately you have to love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't do that, I don't care how many guns you get, it will be your undoing. You have to, this is the way every nation that has freed itself from the bondage of Nimrod and what have you has done. Is and survive to tell about it. Like I said, everybody will be free. Everybody just won't survive freedom. And you have to create these bonds in order to do that. And some of many of them will be created when hard times get here. 
But the more you create now, the more people will survive. And ultimately, that's what is the character of Christ. He didn't come to save himself. You don't come together to save yourself. That may be in the back of your mind. But your priority has to be to save others. Because if that becomes your priority, now God can write upon your heart and tell you when the enemy is coming around the corner and what to do about it. Because you're going to need that kind of guidance. You're not going to... Everybody would perish with what's coming, which isn't just war. If it was just war, that'd be fine. Well, it wouldn't be fine. It'd be terrible. Millions would die. Millions are going to die. Millions have already died. You know, just just looking at, you know, 30,000 people died from the vaccination according to VAERS. And VAERS is not very accurate, but it's not very accurate in the other direction. New York uh, uh, studies from several major universities have all come up to the same conclusion that they underestimate the actual side effects to the tune where they only report about 1% of them. Which means 30,000 times 100. (laughs) 3 million people died from the vaccination. Just based on VAERS data. And it's probably a lot more because we know there are people still dying months and months, six months after the shots. And they're dying of cardiac arrest. And and we say, well, look at this cardiac arrest amongst these young people. It shouldn't be there. And it's in this huge uh, increase in cardiac arrest and, and cardiomyocarditis and all this stuff. And they know it's huge because it's amongst the young. How much is it amongst the old? I know quite a few people who died within six months of cardi- after getting the shot of cardiac failure. Even though some of them went and had a physical shortly before that gave them a clean bill of health. Now, that could happen anytime. Why so many do I hear about all the time I'm hearing about them. And many of these people don't even connect the vaccination with that. But you haven't even seen the end of that. That's the tip of the iceberg. The tip. Tip of a very big iceberg. And there's a lot more coming. And there's a lot that got uh, went on before. That is going to destroy the population of the planet. It's it's going to be devastating. And then war is not going to help. Starvation is not going to help. But they want, they've, they've published for years that they want to reduce your population. The only way to counter that absolutely not caring about, there's a word I mentioned this morning, the, the regeneration. That comes from a word if you if you take it back, and I've taken it back in the definition on that page, we, we won't have time for it right now. If you take it back, it eventually goes back to a word, balo. You know, not regeneration, it's the reverse of balo. But balo is casting something where you do not care where it fails. 
I think that's a direct quote right out of the concordance. Balo, that's like the word Baal. Baal, Balaam, the Nicolaitan, in order for them to create the people in bondage and keep them in bondage, they have to kill care. They have to make it so you don't love your neighbor as yourself, which is of the two commandments, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Legal charity kills care. Now, you say, well, I want to care. Well, walking in that care requires sacrifice. It requires a lot of sacrifice. And Christ is talking about the laborers in the field. And some say, we've labored for a real long time, and others came and only labored for an hour. But he he gets into this farther as we go down. But he says, behold, you know, well, let's go back up to the 17. He says, Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples apart and in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him and the third day he shall rise again. This topic was the topic of the conversation at the transfiguration. Jesus knew he was headed this way. According to Matthew, he is telling the disciples what's going to happen. Now, we don't know anything about further, you know, did this create questions? Did they explain things? But, of course, this is partly why Peter doesn't want him to go because he knows this is going to happen and he wants him to avoid that. But he's willing to go anyway. Why does he have to go? Why does he say we go up to Jerusalem? Jerusalem meaning double peace. And the Son of Man shall be betrayed. And just as we have betrayed our neighbors by choosing to send men to their house. While we say that we love them on church day. But then we send men to their house on all the other days of the week. To force them to contribute to what we want for free. You see, we're not capitalists when we're doing that. We want to take away our neighbor's labor so that we can benefit from his loss. That's terrible. It's a terrible way to do things. It's an absolute sinful way of doing things. And it should be absolutely blatantly obvious. But it's not. Because most of the modern Christians today, many of the, I'll say many of the modern Christians today, live in dark. Because the, the gospel of the kingdom is not being preached in all these churches. They're talking about it. But they're, they're not. They're not teaching the double piece of, of the way of Christ in your heart and in your mind. Verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee, children with her sons worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? Now he knew, but he asked her, she saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on your right hand and the other on your left, in thy kingdom. 
She wants to put her sons first. She evidently didn't hear these other conversations. <laughs> of first being last and last being first. But you see, he's giving you chunks of stories. But they all really have an interlacing weave, a warp and a weft, tying them all together. Because Christ is going to be the first to be crucified. The first to be betrayed. And do you want to be that first? No, I want to be the first to be the ruler. But Christ doesn't want you to be the ruler. But anyway, he goes on to say, or it goes on to say here, But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? See, he just told them. On, on the way, he told his disciples, she probably didn't hear this, of the cup that he was going to have to drink. Matthew puts it in there for that purpose. You know, I even have it set, sectioned off in different sections. But it's a continuation. He just said what my cup is. Now she's wanting to drink of this cup. You know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Which is a baptism of blood? They say unto him, We are able. Not thinking. You know, time has lapsed. Uh, Matthew has put them together for us. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup. And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But, because he knows the future. He says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give. That's a very profound statement. He just gave you a parable just before that that ended with, is it not lawful for me to do with my own what I will? He's saying that the seat on my left hand and the seat on my right hand isn't mine to give. I don't have the right to make that decision. If we would remember to stay in our own lane like Christ did, we would be better off. And stop dictating. Well, it would not be 40,000 denominations if people really understood these verses. Of course, it wouldn't be a lot of things that they really understood these verses. But I, I am baptized with. He says, with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them from whom it is prepared of my Father. Now this is that. There's the Father. We have the Son. And then how will they get it? Well, through the leading of the Holy Spirit. So there's your Trinity, but there's no Trinity doctrine here. It's just talking about these roles played by father and son, just like we were talking roles of husband and wife. Verse 25, But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so amongst you. But whosoever will be great amongst you, let him be your minister, your servant. That's what the word minister means there. It means servant. 
And whoever shall will be chief amongst you, let him be your servant. I should put in, you know, the different words so you can you compare the minister word and the servant word. What words are these in the Greek? So you can see for yourself. Because he says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom of many. He just tied it together with why he's going to Jerusalem. Uh, a ransom of many. And how that all plays out. And why why death and, and this resurrection. For There's numerous reasons. you can. That is an elephant in the room. And people can understand that. But it doesn't do you any good to understand that. If you're not walking in the way. So you have to start walking in the way. And as they depart from Jericho, the great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. By calling him son of David, he's calling him king again, because there was no king in Jerusalem. And it would be the highest son of David who would be king in Jerusalem. These guys are recognizing Jesus as the son of David. He's the talk of the town. He's the talk of a lot of towns. Because the story of the things that he's doing is getting everywhere. And so somehow these blind men knew he was coming. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will that what will ye that I shall do unto you? And they say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus and compassion, so Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight. And they followed him. This is to new disciples. To follow him. Not, it may be, you have to realize if they were organizing the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which we see Jesus commanding that his apostles do, all these people who start following him, they're organizing themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which was the same way the Teutons were organized, the same way Rome was organized before they created a professional army under the uncle of Julius Caesar. They had been organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Or tens, sometimes twelves, hundreds, and thousands. The hearths were often twelve. But it was this small group. The Greeks were calm. They loved the number ten. Teutons used the number ten to create the basic platoon that was both police force and military. But what bound them together was not constant war. They, Teutons weren't, they were somewhat warlike and people will give you all kinds of, tell you all kinds of stories about them always raiding their neighbors. Not so. Not so. I mean, that certainly it happened. But, uh, often, you know, where they got their real military expertise is when somebody decided to raid their neighbors and their neighbors told them about it and they all hunted them down. <laughs> They were fond of doing that to find out. And they had an extremely safe and law-abiding community up there. 
with not the crime that we see in our own streets. And of course, as we showed this morning, they didn't have divorce. That they didn't have uh, uh, orphans. They didn't have abortion. That this simply was unthinkable to them. They didn't have homosexuality. And like I said, because they did not have orphans, I mean, certainly children were orphaned, but they were immediately adopted. Not by, you know, a grandmother or an aunt getting social welfare from their father in Washington, D.C., but by families took them in. And they came into a family and learned the dynamics of the ultimate institution of God. The ultimate corporation of God, which is the family. Two or more people gathered together for a particular purpose under a pre-existing authority. And if you gather into that, let no man put that asunder. So anyway, we got through 20. But I I put in a few quotes from like the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges, which is a commentary in. And uh, Jameson and Fawcett, Brown, Bible commentary, I put them in as well. Uh, and what they were saying is, uh, the parable of the householder and the laborers, recorded only by Matthew, is closely connected with the end of the 19th chapter. So they're saying that these chapters are are connected. And of course, that's what we were showing you. Being spoken with reference to Peter's questions as to how it should fare with those who, like himself, had left all for Christ. So they were talking about this idea. And the Cambridge Bible also, all who have, in true sense, given up all uh, for Christ shall have a great reward. And again, they're talking about the, what it says in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight and 29, which is, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me, like the blind man followed him, in the regeneration, when the Son shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, when we say that, you could draw in all kinds of picture on how they're judging, you know, like off with his head and, you know, you get to come into the pearly gates and you don't and everything. But no, that isn't the way the judgment goes. It's God who's ultimately judged. But what brought the judgment on the Roman Empire was when they persecuted the innocents, they set themselves up for the wrath of God, the consequences of that persecution. Because God's going to work through, you know, he's the God of nature. He's going to work through nature. He's going to work through a lot of things. And it's going to come upon you and you're going to say like, why is this happening to me? Well, because you did it to somebody else. Because as you judge, so you shall you be judged. So by being persecuted, they were going to bring that judgment. Upon Rome. Which is also why Paul wanted to go and be tried in Rome. He didn't have to go. He'd won his case with Agrippa and Festus. But he still wanted to go. Because he he knew what cup was before him. 
And I don't think there's very many people understand why he was going. And there's several different reasons. But in 29 he says, And everyone that hath forsaken house and brethren and sister and father and mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. That's a good deal. But then again, that doesn't mean that you're supposed to forsake your father and your mother. I mean, you're still supposed to take care of your father and your mother. You're still supposed to take care of your brothers and sisters if they need help. But if you're giving up this stuff, and like Jesus was saying to the rich man, give up all the, all your property, give it away and come follow me. And like I, I mentioned this morning when I talked about that, how is this? Which we see in Acts, I think Acts 6, you know, who was a Levite in Cyprus, owned property that he was able to sell. When did Levites get to own property? Because Levites weren't allowed to own property. I know somebody used to read all kinds of books about the Bible and just, I mean, he had huge volumes of books and he would read and everything. And I pointed out, well, Levites couldn't own property in their own name. He says, well, where's that? I never heard that. I said, it's right in the Bible. (laughs) That Levites belong to God. Israel thinks of itself as belonging to God. No, Israel was set free. They were the children of God, but he wasn't trying to possess them. But the Levites belonged to God. They did not have a personal estate. Because they didn't have a personal estate, they owned all things in common. During the recording of this show, we lost power several times because of a big windstorm that was up there and there was power lines that were blown loose and everything. So there were a number of interruptions, so it kind of got pieced together a little bit uh, because our recordings ended up stopping. And so I just put in a little filler here. I was talking about the Levites. We have articles up on the Levites, other recordings that explain what the Levites were doing, how, what, the principles of what Moses was applying to the Levites, who were the social welfare, the church in the wilderness. They were the social welfare for an entire nation of Israel. And that social welfare, because it was based on tithing, which are free will offerings, from the ground up to the minister of your choice and he was responsible for the care of the congregation the tents of the congregation to take care of the needy of society that's what the altars were for the sacrifices which were called free will offerings or burnt offerings meaning given up entirely to the minister of your choice took care of the needy of society there were a number of other stipulations that Moses put on the Levites based on the divine revelation of God to Moses. And we actually see Jesus putting those same responsibilities and limitations on his apostles, his disciples, who are going to become the first ministers of the kingdom. They're going to, he's going to take the kingdom away from one group and appoint it to his little flock. That he's training up. And they cannot exercise authority one over the other. Christ forbids that clearly in three major explanations within the first three gospels. And also we can, we can see how he's done the same thing 
in the Gospel of John, and certainly we see it uh, throughout the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. The altars of the Old Testament were stone altars of unhewn stone, unregulated, uncontrolled. They were tithed to. The offerings, the sacrifices were given to them as free will offerings. And that one of the names of that offering in the in the Hebrew is Corban. And of course the Corban of the Pharisees was not like the Corban of Moses. That the sacrifices of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect because they weren't free will offerings anymore. They were compelled by force. John the Baptist wasn't going to do it by force. He was going to do it by charity. Do, do, you know, if you have an extra coat, share it. Do the same in meats. That was by charity, not by force. John the Baptist wasn't using force, which they're very clear in stating. So anyway, all that fit together. The criteria of being a minister of Christ and the criteria for being a minister of the kingdom of God as the church in the wilderness were the same criteria. But if you don't understand what the Levites were doing, you won't understand what the early church was doing. And you won't understand why. Because they were creating bonds between the people that were based on love. That's why you had to love your neighbor. Coveting your neighbor's stuff through men who exercise authority destroys those bonds. That simple. And there, like I say, there's more to it, but you can go to those other articles. I'm just slipping this in because our explanation got interrupted by power outages. And what I'll do is uh, we also recorded on a another line at the same time the program when we got going again after the power outage uh, several phone calls and we'll include that in the rest of this recording so anyway I'm just putting this in as a little explanation and uh, peace be with you and enjoy the rest of the program okay so there is a hand up uh, looks like uh, Stolman Steve uh, we'll, we'll live your mic see if you have something to say or ask can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. I'm trying to... Well, okay. All right. Well, um, on the morning broadcast, you talked about um, um, how... Uh, what is it? Um, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And you said you were going to expound on that. And I was, I was really interested in hearing what you were going to say about that. I put some notes up on uh, the page for uh, Matthew 19 on this subject, and there, you know, there. What I did is I looked up a lot of different places where they talk about this eye idea of, of narrow gates. And of course, Christ says the the way is narrow. Uh, and the way to destruction is broad. And so there is a sense of that when they talk about the eye of the needle. There is an idea going around that uh, the word camel there should be another word that we have today that means cable and was used in the ten hundreds uh, as cable. Uh, I don't find it anywhere in ancient documents as cable. But they they make a reference to the fact that camel hair rope, which they probably did make, at least the Parthians probably made it, uh, the people from Parthia, uh, 
made this camel hair rope, and they said to get through an eye of the needle. But if you actually look at the words in the Hebrew especially for eye of a needle, even also in the Greek, the way they've made a regular needle, eye, was they wore a hole through a piece of metal or a piece of bone. You know, they'd make a needle out of a piece of bone, and then they would take a sharp thing and just keep scraping it until they had a hole through it. And that's how they created the eye of the needle. There are many Syrian cities that had designed in them a small door on the side of the city that was, and, and anybody who was getting around in those days, and a lot of people were getting around in those days, would have seen these small doors. And it was usually remote, walled-in cities where you would travel along the trade routes and then you'd, you'd get as far as this city and then you would go a little farther and you'd get to another city. And many of these cities or towns only existed because of the trade route. Because the traders would come in and they would either share some goods or they'd pay some money and they would buy some hay because this was across some of the more arid stretches and this allowed them to live. But if you came after dark, you were outside the city walls because they locked the city walls up. So what they had to do was they created a small door in the side of the, that they could defend. You know, a couple of guys could defend and they could maybe roll a stone in front of it or something. And they could protect uh, so that nobody could come into that city. And that was called the Eye of the Needle. And for most of the people that were traveling these long distances, they were using donkeys, which were rather small. And you would have to probably unburden the donkey to get the donkey through. That's how narrow and small these doors were. They, you had to bend over as a person to go into there. And, but they could get a donkey in. They just take off the stuff and carry it in piece by piece and then bring the donkey in, and then all your stuff and your donkeys were safe. But a camel, that's not going to fit through that gate easily. You're definitely going to have to unburden all of its stuff. And then it's going to have to get down on its knees, because it's way too tall. And you might be able to get it through there, but you're going to have to whip it. <laughs> and I always considered that story kind of a humorous story that Christ told that he did this somewhat often where he said things that were kind of funny to people of that time and era. And so he said, it's harder for a rich man, uh, exactly what he said. Let's see if we can find the exact words. Um, uh, 23. Then said Jesus, verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. I say unto you, again, I say unto you. In other words, he's expressing what the deal is with the rich man in this second verse. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It is not easy for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. And that had to be almost comical to the average guy who would know what that looked like. Somebody trying to get that camel through a door that a donkey could barely fit through. 
And, uh, I mean, there's got to be a lot of pulling and pushing and whacking and scraping and skinning. It's hard on the camel. It's hard on the camel driver. But it doesn't mean he can't get in there. And then the other thing is, is that the rich, if you go back to even feudal times, the rich would have lots of people living on their property who were running their farm. They're not going to, if they own a lot of land, they're not going to plow it up all themselves. They're going to have a lot of other people plowing it up. And the way to get where they, you see, Rome got away from this. And, and there's whole stories, Tacitus writes about it, Plutarch writes about it, where the farms in Italy were not producing a fraction of what they could produce. People were living on the farms, they would produce food enough for them, but for resell, it just wasn't happening. They would lose tools, they would not show up to work, they'd be sleeping in the barn. It was hard to get them enthusiastic because once they went to legal charity and the welfare state, it it just simply, they and the rich became richer. The only way to get people to work on the estates was to beat them. And that wasn't going to go over. And of course, they eventually started doing that more and more. And that's where you got the huge Spartacus rebellion where Slaves and servants rose up everywhere and were just taking what they wanted. Like you see today on Black Friday where people break into stores and steal everything. Because <laughs> that, that, that becomes the heart of the people. Because you've killed care in those people. But in some of the other quotes that I found concerning this, there's a, a couple in the Talmud you know, because they have to look for where they're writing in in the languages of the time. Uh, one of them has to do with elephants. Gives a parallel phrase of an elephant passing through the needle's eye, meaning these narrow gates that they create. And there's probably other places besides Samaria and Assyria where they had these. But uh, nobody would hardly know what a, uh, an elephant even looked like at that time. But a, a camel, they would see some of them. There were not, to see a camel in Judea was a big deal. That was not a common everyday occurrence. There were, you don't find camel bones during this particular time in Judea. And, you know, that archaeologist, that seems to be across the board. There was nobody herding camels. There were no great herds of camels in that area. It was donkeys. That was your general beast of burden. And then, of course, horses uh, for riders. Camels were something you would find in Parthia, which is a long ways away. There was lots of camels in Parthia, at least the, the two-hump camels. Uh, and then you could go down to Egypt and you would find the one-hump camels. But in Judea, it was rare to even find them. So, uh, but they would see them because traders would bring them. They were a great beast of burden. A, a camel can carry 600 pounds a long ways and across some of these arid areas. So they were coming in, but there weren't herds of camels stationed in that area. So it would be, you know, it would be like running out to sea. There's camels coming down the street. <laughs> they knew what they were, but uh, they didn't see them very often. But anyway, so, again, why is it hard for a rich man? Rich men depended, if you go back to Exodus, 
that you're going to have this meal, blood on the doorstep, have this meal, eat a whole sheep with as many people as you can get into as big a house as you got. They're supposed to eat it all up and leave nothing left behind. And uh, that, of course, is what they were what they were doing is the rich men had to depend upon the goodwill of the average man and, and the common man in order to protect his wealth. Like I said before, when bad guys came into a community, you could have a hundred bad guys get together and form kind of a mob and go around and raid this town or that town and take off and be hard to find. They're only going to rob the rich man's house. They're not going to rob the poor man's house. So the rich man needs all the poor men to come to his aid. So the rich man knows that I have to win the hearts of all the people. Because my protection is the social bonds I have with the poor and the middle class. Because they've got to be the ones who come and help protect what I have. And the wealthier I make them, the wealthier I become. But see, when we moved away from those social bonds, and now we depend upon a corporate police department, corporate sheriff's department, uh, corporate courts, which we we changed to the the uh, corporate equity courts. I mean, they were around since 1789, because the Judiciary Act of 1789 says that we could have courts of equity. But the average court was the common law courts. But in 1910 and 1911, every state began to accept, you're in administrative courts now. You're not in a common law court. Very difficult to tell the difference. But there are things that you can tell. But you have professional courts. These are the king's courts. You have a professional police force, uh, whether it be your local city police or the state troopers. Those are corporate police. And they will protect the rich. The rich don't have to win your favor. They just call the cops. In those days, like I was saying this morning with the Teutons, all the Teutons, I mean, I put a picture up on our family page of a Teuton family. That was actually a picture that was on a republication of Tacitus. And it's not the best representation because you should see a lot more kids in the picture. (laughs) But uh, you'll notice that the wife is wearing a sword. A wife would would almost always have at least a short sword, if not a dagger. And Tacitus talks about the gifts that she would receive on her wedding day. (laughs) The kind of gifts that she would receive. He says, are no toys collected to suit feminine frivolities or adorn a bride. Instead of that, they consist of oxen. A bridled horse, a shield, a spear, a sword. This is the this is the wedding gifts, including the bride's gifts. And why would a bride receive a spear or a sword? So she could give it to her husband. She's known as a shield bearer. Even even Tolkien, who was very familiar with these ancient writings, he knew a lot of different languages refers to the women as shield bearers. Why is a woman a shield bearer? The man's got a spear in one hand, an axe in the other hand, a sheath in his, uh, you know, in his scabbard on his side, and he's going up to defend the city or the town or the village, which is usually surrounded by a hill. And what is 
the woman doing? She's carrying the shield. She'll place the shield if she's not even carrying it. Chances are it's so heavy she can't even carry it. She's rolling it. That's why they were round. They're rolling it up onto the hill. And she will turn it towards the enemy. And she will lean down holding it up. So he's got both hands free. And if he wonders why he's fighting so hard, he just looks down and he knows what he's fighting for. For the woman who gave him children. Their mutual respect and honor for each other. That they serve each other, risking their life for each other. And that same spirit extends to the the shield bearer next to them. And the shield bearer next to that because they're all up there. And if their husband falls, she will be on him guarding his body with her sword. Preferring to be killed than to be a widow. Not that she's going to try to be killed, but... um, uh, Artemis, who I wrote about, Herman the German, and I've covered him in, in some of the books, uh, his wife was kidnapped or, or captured by the Romans and paraded. And she, you know, the Romans talked about her for centuries, how straight she stood. You know, she's bigger than most Romans anyway. She was a tall woman. Uh, but, uh, Many of the Gauls, they write about the fact that the Gaul women would kill themselves rather than be sold into slavery once they saw their husbands murdered. The the ties of the family were great. I don't encourage that. But uh, I'm saying that these people were not at enmity with each other. And uh, the same with the rich and the poor. Because there were wealthy men. But those wealthy men depended upon all those other men with shields and swords and axes to defend their home, defend their wealth. So they had to constantly be sharing their wealth and and helping men get started, helping young men get started, gifting to all of them because, you know, he would keep his wealth. But see, now... The wealthy man, he doesn't need to give anything to the poor. He doesn't need, except for tax write-offs, he doesn't need to give anything and create bonds with other people. You know, have you heard that, uh, well, maybe Elon Musk would be different because Elon Musk has taken his wealth and done all kinds of things with it for other people. And he's stood up on some kind of principles, but he came up from a common man. Jeff Bezos if I hear his house is rubbing, being robbed, I'd just say, you know, call 911. <laughs> so who's going to run to save Jeff Bezos' house? Because he doesn't have to placate the mob. He doesn't have to encourage or raise the people up. Uh, but you did in those communities. The, the rich man was only protected by the good hearts of the people. So where you, this is how you get rich. This is how you're investing in the kingdom. You know, he's talking about that you have this reward in the kingdom because you invested in your neighbor. What are we doing? We're not investing in our neighbor. We're taking from our neighbor. We send men with swords to our neighbor's house to take away from him. That is 
literally what we do. We send that corporate police to our neighbor's house to take away, and nobody knows. Nobody says, like, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> nobody says, isn't that coveting our neighbor's good through men who exercise authority one over the other that Jesus said is not to be that way with us? I mean, you guys hear me say this over and over again. I get it. Uh, but what we need to do is have all you guys saying this over and over again to everybody else. Share these podcasts. Now, this, yeah, this, this is so plain and simple. And if we don't incorporate these ideas, these precepts into our heart and our mind, what if I suddenly became wealthy? Suddenly I became a millionaire. You know, I, I struck gold. <laughs> and, uh, what would I do with that money? It'd be a huge responsibility. Am I going to change my lifestyle? Am I going to buy new stuff for me and my wife? Are we going to get all kinds of, you know, spend, I mean, I am a penny pincher. I don't spend a lot of money. But, you know, we have these projects we want to do. You would see them getting done pretty quick. But I will still need people. You know, to man the barricades, to uh, carry the shields to the front lines. <laughs> and uh, so we need to be out looking in the hedges. The churches aren't coming to do this. All the people that should come and do this, what we're talking about. Can you imagine, you know, just in your own communities, you know, we talked about hospitals closing. You go to the those people where the hospitals are closing, you say, well, you're saying that we're, you have to close because you're not getting enough money from Medicare or Medicaid. And you don't get enough reimbursement from the insurance companies to stay open. Well, is there any way to run a hospital where we just take care of the needs ourselves as a community? Now, I think we could do that. But it, where's the will to do that? I, I don't think that will really come in earnest till there is, you know, our operating table is the kitchen table. <laughs> and we're taking care of one another with very limited resources. But maybe if we seek the kingdom, then we can say to the blind, you know, touch them and they will see. You know, touch the wounds and they will heal. We won't need all those resources. But, yeah, the, so the rich man, it is a narrow way. We're all, you know, the poor man in America is richer than a lot of people in many other countries. I mean, there are guys on the streets, living on the streets, that eat far better than people in Africa and parts of South America. Uh, because, I mean, all, right now, people are starving to death in many of these places. And the media is just not telling you because then somebody might ask, well, why are they starving? Well, the shutdowns. The shutdowns are going to kill tens, hundreds of thousands of people. That, still, to this day, even though they're not shut down anymore because it, it destroyed economies all across the world. You know, I, I mentioned this morning, while well, I mentioned on this show, 245 no, is it 541 billion dollars a year going to 
social welfare for illegal immigrants. That's huge. Divide that by 300 million. That's how much everybody is paid. Plus all your other social welfare, plus your military expenditures, plus what you sent off to uh, Israel now and what you've sending, been sending off to. They are absolutely draining the blood out of America. The lifeblood out of America everywhere. And they're doing it right in front of our eyes. But nobody sees it. Or not really. I mean, they see it a little bit and they'll complain on Facebook, but they're not really doing what they need to do to change it. Because they live in darkness. And they live in darkness because they don't want to see the welfare of the state is the dainties of rulers. That is a snare and a trap. It is the table that should be for your welfare, but is a snare and a trap. It is a covetous practice that has turned you into merchandise, human resources, and cursed your children with millions and billions of dollars worth of debt. They don't want to see that. I could tell this to preachers who read the Bible, and they will not want to see it anymore than the Pharisees see Jesus saying the same things, healing people that were blind since birth, and figuring, thinking in their mind, how do we kill this guy? How could they even come up with that idea? Because they already degenerated. They're less than human. They're not the son of man. They're the sons of demons. The sons of devils. The synagogue of devils, I guess, is what it says in the New Testament. We have to get back to that. and We have to show people that they can get back to that in order to turn things around. Paul, we got another hand up. Steve, I'm going to take the other guy. All right, thank you. Okay. Okay, one, 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 one. Yeah, you're on live. Is that what I am? I'm a one 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 one. Wow. How yeah, you doing? You show up as all ones. You must have your number blocked or something. You know what it is? I'm on a uh I've been trying to listen to the show tonight and I keep getting a little bit of trouble. Like the phone keeps cutting out, but yeah, this is Tiffany from Missouri. Or I'm not okay. from Missouri. I actually happen to be in Missouri. So how you doing out there? Uh I I'm okay. So, Great. Uh, the reason I was calling is to tell you that I can hear your sound okay, and that uh, okay. this phone I'm on comes up one 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 one. I think it's because it's connected to the internet. Oh, could be, could be. It doesn't recognize yeah. your number. But anyway, the reason I uh, I have a question. Uh, actually, I got a comment too. This uh, time I remember in uh, what was it twenty uh, twelve. Before I came to Missouri, I was uh, running around the motorhome, and I was in uh, Eureka, California, stalled right in front of somebody's house, and um, it wasn't a normal house. It was like a very special house. It, it was There was no other houses around, in fact. Anyway, what happened was, it was this lady, she comes out, she says, are you okay? And I, I said, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, I just think that I'm overheating or I don't know what's going on. But I'm going to pull over here and take a rest. Anyway, long story short, her name was Nancy E. Gregg. And uh, we started talking and we spent like several hours talking about the Republic. And uh, what do you know? She wrote a book 
about the republic, and it's called The Rebirth of the Republic. Actually, it's called The Rebirth of Our Republic by Nancy E. Gregg. And I wondered if you ever heard of her. Uh, no, uh, not that I know of. Uh, what, what town were you near? Well, she's about in her 90s. Do you know if she's still around? Oh, well, I did try to call her a few times. I couldn't get a hold of her. But it's it's not a, like a big, huge book. It's something that they, obviously, we went on uh, to have a dialogue, and she would tell me how they're trying to take my land because there's gold on my land. And, uh, yeah, back in 2012, everybody's, you know, worried about the Y2K and all that. I was just passing through. But in any event, I feel like this whole meeting with her was um, important. And uh, the other thing she told me was, I pushed, I found the book, and I just said, I'm going to ask Brother Gregory if he knows about that. No, I I don't know specifically about her. I mean, it doesn't ring a bell, but then there was somebody, I was trying to remember who they were by their name, and I I don't remember people by their names as well, as you all know. Well, you can you can Google her name, The Rebirth of the of Our Republic by Nancy E. Gregg. I mean, she was an elderly lady, and it's only 100 pages, 115 pages, and it's basically everything, because I remember you saying one time, if you find anybody that's talking about what we're talking about, and I never dawned on me that this woman, she, it's all about charity. She's basically, not perfectly, but she's on the right trail. And uh, anyway, if you can ever get a chance to take a look at that book, I would think that... Um, but she, one thing that I, I think I dropped the book because I kind of thought, okay, well, she's bringing in all these uh, Freemasons, and um, when they were fraternal orders that actually worked with the church in righteousness, but now they've gone rogue. I mean, they're just not even the same people anymore. Some of these... Kind of like when you think about the Constantinian, not the Constantinian Church, but the um, Ro- the Republic of Rome. I mean, the Roman Republic, the the public, you know, the real Republic, 500 years before, they actually uh, used to be good people in turn too. So, anyway, I really think that um, these fraternities, organizations, clubs, churches, it's like night and day from what it used to be. And her book is basically trying to bring all that back. And obviously, it's going to be a tough bring back. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the the fact is, is this is what I say, is Israel was a republic. People talk about it being a theocracy. All government is a theocracy. It's just either your God is unseen or he is seen. <laughs> the, the God is the ruling judge. That that's and what the God of Heaven is is a ruling judge. That if you go against the wisdom of God, the right reason of God, you will suffer the wrath of God. It's not because God hates you or is mad at you or you've got him ticked off. It's the consequences of going against right reason. And if anybody thinks that they're going to be free while enslaving their next-door neighbors so that they can have free education, they're not going to be free. That's just it. And all a republic is, at least in the the original republic, Liba Respublica, 
It wasn't a government of representative legislators who make laws for you. It was a government of the people for the people and by the people that were free from things public. That's why I wrote the article Libra Res Publica. Because the word res publica originally came from the Latin idiom Libra Res Publica, which even Tacitus writes about. He, he doesn't believe that it's possible at the time that he existed, but he was at the time of the early church. But of course, the early church was forming a republic taking care of the needy, and there were a lot of wealthy people that were in the original Christian republic. But they had to be there for the purposes of Christ and not just to protect their wealth or to save themselves. This is why when I was talking to you about people who want to join a militia, if you just want to join a militia to protect your freedom, you're going to lose because you won't have the right kind of people with you. Because they're all there just to protect their freedom. You're incidental That's to their freedom. That's why you said they're going before God. They have to join congregation first and learn what it means to build bonds, yeah, well, that's, brotherhood, and yeah, love create one another. Social and learn bond. by charity. Yeah, the reason the Teutons could go against the Roman soldiers, three legions, they went around, overnight they've mustered an army of 12,000 Teutons to fight Roman legions that numbered over 15,000 well-equipped, well-trained soldiers, and they defeated them to the man. They killed them all. None of them got back. And how did they do that? Because the Romans were much better trained, had better armor, had better uh, swords and equipment. Now, later on, the Teutons would develop metallurgy so that they had better steel. But at that time... They they were out-weaponed, out-gunned, out-trained, but they defeated him. Why? Because of the dedication of the individual. I've told story after story after story where, you know, 19 men could hold off a panzer division because of their camaraderie, because of their bonds. We There's, there's mystical things that go on in life. Uh, I just heard a story about the other day, a lady who had... Uh, uh, Lyme's disease, got it in New York. Ended up, uh, she couldn't do anything. She was just wasting away. They didn't find out until it was, uh, she her body was severely damaged. And she ended up going through divorce, uh, lost custody of her kids. And so she went out to California and got a little small apartment. She was going to die there. And she just, she had signed agreements. They had a hospice care coming in. Wasn't supposed to do any resuscitation or anything like that. And she thought she was going to die within the week. And she didn't. Three days went by. She wasn't dead. And she asked if she could get up and go out and get a little fresh air and sunlight. And the hospice worker was going to do that. Her caregiver was taking her out in the sunlight. And they... They barely got down to the sidewalk, and all of a sudden she was stung by a bee in the forehead. And she kind of swatted at it and looked up, and all of a sudden she saw all kinds of bees. And all these bees just attacked her. Now, just shortly before this, she recalls feeling the sun on her face, thought she was going to, you know, she wasn't even going to be outside again. She was going to die within a week, two weeks at the most. She was, she said she felt 
happy to be alive. And then the bee stung her. The bee came down and stung her. And then all these bees came down and stung her. And her health care provider ran off. Because they ended up being killer bees, African killer bees. And, and just a, a freak swarm of them. And she got stung all over the place. And she was allergic to bee stings, so she thought for sure she was just going to swell up and die. And her caregiver came back when the bees disappeared because they, they sting you for a while and then they disappear. And the caregiver was going to try to get her in the car and take her to the hospital. She said, no, just take me inside. I'll, I'll, I'll be dead shortly. She was resigned to the fact that she was going to die. They got her inside and she didn't die. And she didn't die. And she didn't die. And she didn't have Lyme's disease anymore. She got better. Now she's God one of the biggest... God cured her. She's a big advocate of using bee venom to cure Lyme's disease. <laughs> well, wow. I tell you what, what cures death is appreciating the life that God has given you. And what is even better is to appreciate the life that God has given you and share it with somebody else. Not defend it. Not that you shouldn't defend it. It's perfectly okay to defend it. And, you know, to fight those who attack you. You, you. you have every right to do that. But what you have a responsibility to do is care about your neighbor's life as much as you care about your own. And so, anyway, the story was related to me by somebody who's a great storyteller. But uh, the reality is, is that... Uh, you know, there's a lot more going on every day than what is dreamt of in your or my philosophy. <laughs> uh, to quote a line from Shakespeare's Horatio's, you know, but the the reality is, is that if we had thousands of people struggling to take care of one another, I mean, most of us, we'd be taking care of ourselves. But then we have this reach out that we're trying to help take care of other people even outside of our community, to the best that we can. And we can be picky and choosy about it. And we need to be. That that would bring blessings that we could not see coming. It's like that woman could not see those bees coming. But uh, she, uh, last I heard, she's still alive and kicking. I should find out what her name is. I tell about names. But uh, probably look up. Well, uh, I've been faith, faith there because that's... I've been noticing in my life that faith loses power when you fail to put it to practice. And, you know, I put it to practice every single day. That's what I've been doing out here. I've just been learning how to do that. And that's, I think, once you do that, but, you know, you, like you just said, you can't do it alone. you got to have where two or three are gathered. You have to have, most people have families, you know. Most people get together and um, practice this faith as a a tribe, you know. I knew a guy in San Jose, and he he was always thinking he was looking for the kingdom, and he was trying to deal in silver and all this stuff. He's really a very selfish guy. And I said, if you want to seek the kingdom, because he was staying in a house that his parents provided him, they had a couple of rentals, and this is kind of a. And he says, how do you? Who lives across the street? And he says, well, there's an old lady who lives across the street. And I says, do you ever see her? And he says, well, I see her take out her garbage. I says, well, you make it your goal from now on 
on garbage day, you go over there and you take out her garbage. And then after the garbage man comes, you take her garbage can back. It will change your life. Well, he he doesn't know if it would change his life even to this day because he didn't start doing it. <laughs> but he had to, you have to start thinking about other people. And you have to start putting... And now how you do that is going to be different with every one of us. But it's it's about... God has given us this life. We have to appreciate the life enough to give it away. When the rich man who has all this wealth, way more to appreciate than anybody else, he has to give it away. And it's really easy for the rich man to give half of everything he has away. But what did Christ count as the real wealth in the kingdom? When the widow lady gave, what was it, two mites, two pence. And that was counted as had Because it was all she had. And, you know, no greater love has a man than he lays down his life for his fellow man. So it's not about doctrines and philosophies and theologies and catechisms and magic words and magic days. It's about sacrifice. But we have to sacrifice in the name of Christ. You can go out and give... You could go out and give all kinds of money to all kinds of people on the street and do them no good whatsoever. You'll weaken them. So you have to learn how to be wise. Well, you're not wise. I'm not wise. We're not wise. But the tree of life is wise. And so, but we're not even having the conversation in, in the sense that Paul used the word conversation because the word he used, polytume, means civil affairs. And he said, and when he talks about conversation, he uses a couple different words for conversation, but at least in one place he's talking about our conversation is in heaven. Our, our uh, conducting of civil affairs is in the kingdom of heaven. And we do it by faith, hope, and charity. There's still taxes in the kingdom of heaven, but we call it tithes. And uh, and you, in order to do that, you have to give this burnt offering to somebody you trust and say, you take care of this. And we're trying to get people to do that on as local level as possible. But people complain there's not enough people in the network. Or I, I must have spent 40 hours this week plus the other work I did getting ready for these shows. You know, I, I will change those pages and add links to those pages. I added to the family page. I added to the praise page. I, I, there was a page I was going to get into, and I didn't get into it. Nature of the Beast, I've been adding to that page, expanded it, double the size that it was. Because, you know, somebody once told me that the, the phrase, Nature of the Beast, wasn't heard until... 1600s actually read that and, and looking up the the nature of the beast and something led me to look that up well I found it in Ovid <laughs> Metamorphosis <laughs> uh, which is a little bit older <laughs> it was translated in 1567 it was written long before that but uh you know, I started to put in part of the poem of Ovid's Metamorphosis 
which what he's talking about that word metamorphosis in Ovid's poem is really about what Jesus is talking about when he says regeneration in Matthew 19. That's that's that regeneration is morphing us back from being perfect savages into children of God. And and we have to take that journey. And uh but, you know, he says, I've got some of the poem here. I actually wanted to put more. I ended up putting more down at the bottom of the page. But the beasts do break their fast with flesh, and yet not all beasts nether. It's all written in Old English, so nothing is spelled right. For horses, sheep, and roth beasties uh, to live by grass. Roth beasties are like cattle. Uh, live by grass had lever. The nature of the beast that doth delight in bloody food is cruel and unmerciful, as lions fierce and of mood, and Armenian tigers, and bears, and wolves. And what a wickedness it is to cram the maw with maw and frank up flesh with flesh and for one living thing to live by killing of another. So anyway, and, and then I have a link down there to the context of how he's putting that in there. He's not talking about wolves eating other animals and sheep and stuff not. He's talking about us biting one another. You know, and that's what we do. We have a system where everybody bites their neighbor to obtain benefits. And they even bite their unborn children with the debt they're going to leave behind. And we do this by millions and billions of people. And that is a threat to humanity. And the wrath of God is coming. Now, that wrath of God, the consequences are going to come through, you know, the New World Forum. What they're going to do is nothing compared to what is coming. We've seen millions die uh, in the last months. I mean, all around the world, there, but we don't see it in the news because they cover it up. Billions upon millions of people die. And, and millions and millions and millions of people suffering under the ill effects of their vaccination and more now under the runaway inflation. And it, misery is coming but I don't say that to make anybody afraid, but we need to be on the right side of this because we're not at the point where I can say, don't bite one another lest you be devoured. You are being devoured now with an addiction to benefits by the, by the hand of the state. And we're not going to get out of that by taking up a gun. I own guns. Uh, my kids all own guns. All my neighbor, my neighbors, some of my neighbors own, own more guns than I've ever even seen. I mean, I know guys who have hundreds and hundreds of guns and tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition in their house out here in this country. But that's not going to save us. I'm not against that. What I am for is everybody seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when the rich realize that that is their only hope, they may be able to get 
before you send to the kingdom of God. <laughs> but until then, I think if I, guns I were the answer, people would have already called called the arms and armed up and taken the tyrants down. I think if guns were the answer, they would have well, already done it. I think most of the people who want to take up guns have been tyrants themselves. Large tyrants are born from millions of small tyrants. Everybody who wants benefits at the expense of their neighbor is a slave trader and a tyrant. And they they want to put their, you know, all the socialists are the biggest ones for claiming this. The, you know, actually, Elon Musk said it the other day, that uh, claiming righteousness while doing wickedness. And that, of course, you know, uh, not, I don't want to hold, I, I don't know. Elon is a fascinating individual, you know. Uh, you know, he's he's really a hard guy to figure at times. But there's there's very few. You know, there are courageous people on the scenes. You know, like uh, Thomas Sowell and guys like that. And even you know, I know some people hate Jordan Peterson, and I know where he's wrong about things, but he's right about a lot of things. And he's outspoken. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if I got a chance to speak with him, I might be able to show him what he's missing. And so He'll have I to go back and change that Exodus study of his if you do. Yeah. Well, maybe just put me on a couple of times and we'll change it together. <laughs> I, would, I would think that would be a great show. I I have to, what I need to do is find the time. And, you know, I have uh, have lots of work to do, lots of things to do. It's really amazing how the time gets consumed, you know. I'm, I'm seldom to bed before midnight, and I'm seldom up later than 5. As a matter of fact, I don't think, I can't remember when I got up later than 5. <laughs> I'm usually up by 4. And I'm working just about all the time. But I, I followed what God wanted me to do. It always meant more work, more manual work, but I'm addicted to manual work, I think. <laughs> if I stay well, I think you, I think you're doing way more than doing way more than I mean, you're doing so much that of course, like this morning you were talking about the network or the building the network. There's there's all kinds of social media out there. I mean, it's not just Facebook, but there's you know, all these others, uh, Getter and all these other things. And there's thousands of people on them. And some of those alternative ones are more likely to have people that are thinking out of the box. You know, all of these pages, anybody can go to a page at, at Preparing You. The more they read the pages, the more they see these things, they can they can be familiar and then they can go out there and share them with all these other social medias. And it just encouraged people. I mean, we're not going to get the vast majority of people. We know that. It's never, I've never seen that anywhere in the history of the kingdom. It's always been a minority. But still, we're looking for the lost sheep, those that will hear his voice, those that will see this and say, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. And they are out there. But, but the way to, I look at it is if it's, if it's, like you said, if there's no peace with it, if you're bringing someone over and you don't have peace with it and it's not led by the Holy Spirit, I don't believe that, I believe you're just like straw blown in the wind. Uh, you want to make sure that 
it's well, you don't peaceful make sure. and it's uh, oh, you free do. flow and it's like, you know. You, you, you cast your seed, you cast the seed into the field and then you let nature take its course. We don't convince oh, okay. Yeah, But the idea is, you know, we know that our web pages early on were censored by Google. You wouldn't find this on the front page, but you would find two or three detractors of his holy church with junky websites, not much content, terrible videos, where you don't even see the person talking, defaming us. Why are those showing up first instead of our own pages? Well, we, we know that guys who worked at Google uh, was happened to have an Arabic name, but uh, and wrote in Arabic on his Facebook. Joined our network, and right after they joined our network, this happened. That we started falling down in, you know, in the searches. Now we're actually kind of going going back up again, but uh, we have a huge amount of content. Why wouldn't we be showing up everywhere? And I can tell you this, that Facebook, and they're dividing the people. They're, they're, they're sectionalizing the people. If you're, if you're uh, a right wing, you're going to get all kinds of right wing content coming your way. If you're left wing, you'll get all kinds of left wing content. Go. They don't want you talking to each other. We, we want to go right into the camp of those that are evil and say, hey, this is the way it is. And, and they will kick you out. Well, we don't need you. to do it on the internet all the time. We could do it, and we could just meet in person, and they wouldn't even bother us. Right, but uh, I'm not worried about them bothering us. But the point is, is that all we're doing is giving an opportunity. We have the huge websites, and we will have them for a while yet. But eventually, they'll all go down. And uh, but the idea is that people anywhere and read this on their phone. We've had ministers sitting at a bus stop and the guy next to him is on one of our web pages looking at stuff, wondering about the stuff that he's reading. And he's sitting next to one of our ministers at the bus stop. Uh, the fact is, is that, and this is the seed, all we're doing is throwing out the seeds. But everyone has to become a sore. Because people look at this and they say, well, this makes sense, it doesn't mean it's going to make sense to everybody else. But again, we're not looking for every sheep. We're looking for sheep that hear his voice in what we say. And the ministers are going to be able to explain it to these people who want to know the truth. They want to know, so you got to know how to explain it too, right? You do need to know something about explaining, but ultimately we're... Our teacher is the Holy Spirit. Now, people will ask questions, and we should be able to answer those questions, and that's what I've tried to do in the website. So they'll ask them, what about this passage? What about that passage? Somebody sent me something. Somebody I know close sent me something. He says, well, did you ever notice that in uh, this particular verse in the Bible that they use this word and that word and all that stuff? I went to that verse at preparing you, Every single word that he was noticing is footnoted with the exact same meaning because of the fact that, yeah, I saw that. 
when I went through that epistle, I put that in there. So you can go to almost anywhere in Romans, almost anywhere in Ephesians, and all these books that we've already done, Exodus. People say, well, what about getting the leaven out? Well, I've got an article on leaven. What about exercising authority? I've got that linked all over the place where Jesus says it's not to be that way with us. What about, what does it mean to covet? You know, somebody was just talking to me last night that people don't know what covet means. Well, you can look it up in a dictionary. It's right there. It's You know, wanting to have a wife like your neighbor's wife is not coveting your neighbor's wife. Wanting to have a car like your neighbor's car is not coveting your neighbor's car. That's just saying that's a really nice car. I'd like to have that. Now, Wanting it too much can be coveting, but it's not coveting your neighbor's car. But wanting to have your neighbor's car, wanting to have your neighbor's wife, that's coveting your neighbor's wife. If you want your student loan paid for by your neighbor's money, that's covetous. Wanting to have a school to send your kids to by forcing neighbors who don't send their kids to that school to pay for it, it's covetous. It's wicked. It's sinful. It's in opposition to Christ. How in the world can you call yourself a Christian and send your children to public school? How could the ministers now, of the church be teaching their how could they be teaching the people in the congregations? Um, why are they not teaching them about coveting? I say that we go to the church and give the uh, pastor a test and have him graded. Well, that anybody can do that, but I, all you have to do is bring up the truth, and chances are you'll get kicked out of the church that doesn't want you. But that's okay. If well, that's then the church is going to know he's not a church of Christ, and then maybe he'll repent and he'll change his ways up know, on the pulpit. I don't know any church out there that is a church established by Christ. What preacher is preaching this? What preacher is, is none that I dare found. say that if you're sending your kids to public school? You're probably not a Christian. You could become one. All you have to do is repent. Change your thinking on that. You know, I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying they're not following Christ. Because Christ said not to covet. Well, they're they're hurting the people. The people are being lied to and they're going to... They're going to church every Sunday and they think they're saved and they think they're going to make it to heaven. They think they're going to have eternity with God. Well, all those... It's all just those not right all those preachers are prophets of the beast. And we know what happens to the prophets of the beast. Revelation tells you. So they're they're condemning themselves. Now, maybe nobody told them. We hear that in the Bible. It says, how would I know unless somebody told me? Well, I can tell you there are people out there you can tell and they still won't know. Because they don't have eyes to see. And so... What about us? If we have a chance to witness to somebody the truth, and we don't do it because we're afraid they're going to pick on us or they're not going to like us, or well, are we any more or less guilty than those preachers we're up guilty. there who are just taught? They're just teaching what they were told. I don't know that they're liars. I know they're telling a lie. 
but I don't know if they're liars because I don't know if they understand. Oh, because you think they probably they don't have eyes to see, so therefore they're just they're they're preaching what they've been taught in the seminaries is what you're saying, right? Right. They've been deceived, and they're teaching what they've been deceived about. I don't know. God can know their heart all the way down to the very bottom of their soul. I don't know it. But if they're confronted with it and they persist, what have we done? We're bringing judgment to them. This is what I was saying about Peter and the Twelve Apostles. They're not bringing judgment because they're sitting in a chair and people are lining by and you're condemned and you're not condemned and you're exonerated. They're not judging that way. That's oh, yeah, our imagination. We're judging because we present the truth and they can reject it. They can even kill us because they don't want to hear it anymore. But all that does is bring it's more their, judgment. It's their job to research it and to find out and show themselves approved in order because they're responsible for all those people that they're feeding this gospel well, to that is not the gospel they, of Christ. When they... But they have to see the truth. And again, to see the truth is a gift. We're just giving them the opportunity. Like I say, all the stuff I teach is to help you set down the lie. When you pick up the truth, you'll pick up the truth because God gives you that truth. It's not because I gave you the truth. I may have witnessed to the truth, but it's God who gives you the truth. And the truth is like light. You can't put it in a box. You know, because God is the God of light. It says that several times in the Bible. And the way and the truth and the light. The truth is the light. The truth is what is. And so the truth isn't what we remember in our brains or write down in our catechism. Those are just words on a paper. The truth is something far more. But anyway... I gotta look here at the time, see if anybody else did we drive everybody else. But anybody can get in on a conversation if anybody wants to raise their hand. Let's see. I may need to run out and do a few things and I'm losing my voice. I don't know if people notice that. I don't know how I lose it so quick these days. I'm just I shout too much into the microphone. But uh I'll let you go, Tiffany. I, I did get your email, okay, I started to you. read it. But uh I did not get it finished. <laughs> But anyway, I know you're busy. I, I know you're busy. Everybody should be putting in some time to try and advance the kingdom. That's my opinion. That's how you serve God is by advancing His kingdom. Now, how you do that is listen to Him, and He'll tell you what to do. But we just read in the the good steward or the good uh, householder. Every time he found somebody idle, he said, "Why are you idle?" <laughs> Why are you idle? Why aren't you working in the field? Uh, so, yeah, God doesn't like the idol. <laughs> Idolatry or idleness. I don't think he, he does. One. <laughs> he wants to see well, us busy. You, thank you very much for talking with me. I appreciate it, and I hope you have a great night. You too. God bless. God bless. I'll, I'm going to sign off, and so uh, I better get to it. Until then, peace on your house, and God be with you. See you on the network. God bless.
You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.